Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and today on Chef Timoni, we're looking at just what to have when you order dinner. So, what's your drink order? Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef Timoni. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Hi, and thanks for joining me here again for Cheftimony. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I'm excited to share today's show with you. It's a little bit different. We've got three interviews today, which is a change of pace. And it's also different in that we're not going to focus as much today as we usually do on the food, but instead on what to go with the food, on what to drink with it. So the first two interviews happened recently on the same evening on Vancouver's Main Street. The first is with Peter Vanderiep, and Peter is the bar manager, the bar program director at Campagnolo Upstairs. Campagnolo is a wonderful restaurant on Main Street. Uh, Chef Robert Belcham, who's one of the owners, appeared on, let's see, episode 16 of the show. And if you haven't listened to that, I encourage you to have a listen. You'll get a great idea about what Campagnolo is all about and what the food program there is all about. Campagnolo Upstairs, as its name suggests, is a flight of stairs above Campagnolo itself, and it's this wonderful casual bar that has any number of things going for it. The casual vibe is one of the things that I really like, but also definitely the food. It's a different menu up there. They've got, from Campagnolo Downstairs, they've got the famous Dirty Burger that I talked about a lot with Chef Robert Belcham and some other really wonderful offerings on the menu side. And then they've got the whole bar program. And Peter, who you're about to hear from, is responsible for that bar program. So he's pouring some really interesting wines and champagnes, including a lot of natural wines. Peter also has a focus on the beer side, exclusively on BC craft beers. So a wonderful beer selection as well. And then there are the cocktails. And to my mind, as wonderful as the wine and the beer offerings are, it's the cocktails that are the real draw for me and really what I think about when I think about Peter and Campagnolo upstairs. Peter is just an enthusiast and he is somebody who shares his knowledge openly and in a really friendly way. And I can say, as somebody who doesn't know anything really about cocktails beyond the absolute bare bones basics, Peter is a great guy to talk to because even though he's got a ton of knowledge, he's not at all intimidating in sharing that with you. He's just enthusiastic about it. He wants you to learn about cocktails and he wants to mix something delicious for you. So tell him what your taste profile, I suppose we could say, is tell him what you like, what flavors you like, and Peter will put together a wonderful drink for you. Then after my talk with Peter, I headed across the street actually to the boxcar and boxcar is part of the Cobalt Hotel and it's another great, uh, great spot to have a drink. It's a long skinny room shaped like a boxcar as the name suggests. And there I met up with a few friends, including Chad McCarthy, who you last heard from on episode four of the show last year when we were talking about oysters and beer. And Chad is a lawyer in Vancouver, but he is also a Cicerone, which um, means he's a beer expert. A Cicerone is to beer what a sommelier is to wine. And again, like Peter, Chad is a real enthusiast, and it's uh, it's infectious to talk to him about craft beer. He's really, really enthusiastic about it. Keeps tabs on the craft brewing scene in Vancouver and beyond, even though he's very busy now, not just as a lawyer, but as a relatively new dad. 
And the other thing that uh, that Chad likes to do is to brew beer. So he belongs to a club that brews beer and gets together with friends and they tackle different approaches to beer and have a lot of fun with it. So you'll hear in that interview some some really fun discussions about uh, brewing beer and what you might want to consider sipping on this summer. And then the third interview happened very, very recently here. I'm recording this introduction uh, in my bedroom, looking out at the water in uh, Gibsons, BC. And the third interview happened at a local brewing I don't even want to say brewery, although that's what it is, but more than that, it's a farm. And this is Persephone Brewing right here in Gibsons, BC. And I had a really fun interview and a tour of the farm with Rue Miller, who is the tasting room manager at Persephone. So that's coming up as well. But for now, let's head to Vancouver's Main Street and we'll have a talk with Peter Vanderie at Campagnolo Upstairs. Okay, Peter, you've been here as long as I remember. Can you give the listeners the background? When did Camp Upstairs open, and, and how long have you been involved? Uh, we've been open since December... Whoa, sorry. I've been involved since December 2013, but we opened in February 2014. Okay, and what was your pre-opening involvement? Were you coming up with the cocktail program? What was that looking like? Yeah, my bosses, uh, Tim Pittman and Robert Belcham, were doing the, the build-outs and uh, the food and the con- or the um, branding, I guess. And then I was doing the whole beverage beverage program and service. I've got my idea of what Camp Upstairs is all about, but give the listeners yours. What is it that you're providing for people when they come here? Uh, I think what, what we're all about is classic and classic-focused cocktails, good beer, great wine, great food in sort of a neighborhood, low-key environment. It's a place for adults to have conversation and good drinks. And tell us a bit more about the wine. When you say good wine, is there, I think there is, but tell me, uh, there's something of a naturalist focus to the list. What are the criteria you use when you're, when you're picking wines? <laughs> yeah, it's a little, I haven't fully nailed exactly what what I'm after. I do enjoy natural wine. I don't pour that exclusively. Um, I'm looking for wine. Generally, I care more about viticulture, so organics, biodynamics, uh, sustainable sustainable practices uh, at the winery. I care about. I want to produce, or I want to list wines from producers who care about the land that they're on, and that they're farmers before uh, before winemakers. And it's kind of the same philosophy that uh, Chef has in the kitchen. So that, that marries well, between obviously, between the bar and the kitchen. How does that thinking influence beer selection and spirit selection at all? I'm, mm. I'm curious because, you know, obviously hop production comes to mind, but I'm wondering how, uh, maybe just give us your comments on, on how, you, how you make those choices around beer and what, what uh, cocktail components you're sourcing. It's tough. There's, there's some uh, cognitive dissonance in the choices because the wine I pour is from everywhere. I have sake on the list. Beer, I only buy from breweries located within Metro Vancouver. I think the brewery scene is world-class, and so it makes no sense for me to buy beer from someone in the States or someone from Alberta or further afield. I can get perfect options across every style in Vancouver. Spirits, that's harder. When you're operating a cocktail bar, we're not at the point yet where we have world-class spirits in every category in, in BC, and there's some spirits that you can't get legally uh, outside of the, the source that they're, they're traditionally from, things like tequila and mezcal or 
London Dry Gin, that goes more, I select for quality there, for spirits. So top quality, it's tough. Spirits are dominated by large corporations making a lot of products, a lot of money with a lot of marketing, but I try not to, I just try and buy the stuff that I like. Right. And what about other components? What about things like, um, and, and I'm, I'll need your guidance on this because I don't really know what goes into cocktails beyond the very basics, but bitters comes to mind. Sure. Where And where do you source some of the other components? Bitters are tough. I'm a bit of a traditionalist, uh, both with cocktails and their components. So I like classic cocktails, cocktails that are very spirit forward. Citrus really is the only fruit I carry unless there's something really seasonal then I like to pick it up from the farmer's market every every Wednesday in the summer, um, but it's only open for a four-month stretch here, so uh, sometimes I get stuff from the kitchen. Right now I have some spruce tips that I'm working with, playing with right now, but bitters, I use some local companies. There's three that come to mind, uh, Bittered Sling, Ms. Better's Bitters, and uh, Apothecary Bitters. They're all local companies. I use specific ones. I don't have their whole product line. I, I'm kind of a classic bitters guy. So Angostura, orange bitters from uh, Regan uh, in the States, and uh, Regan's number six orange bitters, and then Peychaud's. And those are irreplaceable. They, they have to be there. Right, right. No matter what, no matter how hyper-local you want to be, those are the, the building blocks, or some of the building blocks. Correct. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, having been open since 2014, I'm curious, two questions. One, if, if there's a typical order that you see or a typical customer, what is it? And two, to go along with that, have you noticed any changes in what customers are looking for and maybe in the sophistication of customers? I'm, I'm guessing there's been some cocktail education in the city over the years that you've been open here. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more people that know what a Sazerac or a Negroni are. That's for sure. That's... Absolutely for sure. Corpse Survivor number two, people roll in and they know those drinks, which is great. There's still 90% of the people out there that have no idea what they are and they might think they're house cocktails or maybe not the Negroni. The Negroni is well known. But uh, people have definitely, there's, there's a broader selection of people who know what these are. They're after them. People who are younger as well are getting into cocktails and willing to pay for them. I, I don't think at you know, we ID'd a guy on the weekend. He was he was newly 19, and he was getting shown along by his by his partner. Like, hey, this is the cool, this is a good place to get a good classic cocktail. You need to try it in this style or try it this way. And you know, his partner is only 22, so he, they they knew what they were doing. Also, same thing with wine too. More people are looking for natural wine, whereas five years ago you had to explain yourself every time. Oh, the wine is supposed to be like this. Or, you know, don't be afraid if something's unfiltered or don't be afraid of the local spirits. They're good. That, that sort of thing. There's less of that now. And is there still somewhere that you um, look forward to the customers going? In other words, is, are, are there things that you're doing now or contemplating now that are still sort of new to the market or uh, something that might be coming or that hasn't been adopted widely in the city yet? Well, as much as I say that people have changed, it's still... You know, I wish people were more, even more comfortable with, you know, spending a little more on wine. It's getting harder and harder to find wine at the traditional glass price pour, in Vancouver anyway, like that sort of $12 mark, which is where 
good glass boards have kind of floated for the past five years, say, it's harder and harder to find those wines we can pour at that price. And so trying to get people a little like, yeah, maybe 16 bucks and you'll get a, a really good wine. It's kind of the same with cocktails. People want, they want something fancy, but uh, they're not always aware of how much it might actually cost them sometimes. So it's just that adjustment. And I think that's happening. There's places, you go downtown and cocktails are pricey. I spent a lot of time in Las Vegas, and as one of my uh, buddies who lives there says, um, he said, when it comes to cocktails in Las Vegas, $18 is the new $8. <laughs> exactly. And it's, I mean, it's tough, but there's pressures on, on the bar side as well. Prices are, you know, pr- the price of Buffalo Trace, which has been my well bourbon for five years, is, it's gone up. It's like up. 25%, 30% over the past five years. One of the chefs that I interviewed early on in this podcast series, he was, and I, I'm going to ask you the same question about cocktails and wine that I asked him, or the same topic that I discussed with him about food. His theory was that people should eat out less than they do. And when they do choose to eat out, they should accept that it's going to cost them some money and go out with the intention of getting ex- an experience that they wouldn't be able to provide themselves at home. So, in other words, if don't don't always look to restaurants for the cheap alternative. Mm. I think his point was we've become spoiled with low-cost everything. And he was saying, as a chef, he wished that people would um, eat out a little bit less, but eat out more selectively and be willing to to step up and pay for it when they do do that. So would you, I think you would, but but please tell me, would you give the same advice on the, on the cocktail wine beer side? Yeah, I mean, I still think we still offer value to the guests regardless. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I've always kind of... Uh, argue that yeah that's what you when you go out to a cocktail bar get something you wouldn't make yourself because you have somebody that's you're paying to do that for you know it's like if you wanted to buy all the ingredients to make say a, a great a great classic a vieux carré you need you would need like three hundred dollars worth of product at home so paying fourteen dollars for one out in a bar is not so bad so yeah, I, I, I think so, but I think there's still value in becoming a regular, not looking for uh, to be price prohibitive. Right, That's, no, absolutely, and and I fully agree with that. It's funny, one of the other things I've discussed on the show quite a bit is actually the benefit to being a regular. Mm-hmm. On the kitchen side, or on the on the food side as the customer, because you get to know the restaurant, you know when you know seasonal change is going to happen, and, and I think the same thing holds true for cocktails, right? Absolutely. So my last question: What will you make me? I'm gonna order a cocktail, and my uh, I'm I'm pretty simple guy on the cocktail side. I love bourbon. Uh, I love my my taste tend, trends toward bitter rather than sweet. So what do you recommend? What are you gonna put together? Oh, you came you came to the right place. Okay, that's you've uh, uh, got a, a drink that's on, new on the menu since you've last been in, called the drink with no name. It's it's bourbon, lustau vermouth. Rosso or Rojo, sorry, um, so Spanish sherry-based vermouth, and Amaro Nardini, which is a really beautiful, uh, really highly finessed bitter from uh, Bassano in the northeast of Italy, and uh, a little bit of coffee bitters uh, from Apothecary, like cacao coffee bitters, so it's bitter, it's boozy, it's a play on a boulevardier. Okay. Well, it's wonderful, I can't wait to try it, and uh, Peter, thanks for, very much for taking the time. My pleasure, thank you. I think you can hear it in his voice, Peter's dedication to his craft there, and I can tell you he's a really, really welcoming host. 
Camp Upstairs fits in with Campagnolo itself. They're both very, very welcoming spaces, but Camp Upstairs has almost that friend's basement, relaxed, casual vibe happening. But what friend's basement can you go to where you can get such a wide selection of BC craft beer, some really interesting, including natural wines, and those amazing cocktails that Peter is putting together. And all of that you can balance with the Dirty Burger or some other really great menu offerings that are constantly changing. So if you haven't been, I highly recommend it. Sit down at the bar, talk to Peter. As I say, he's a really engaging guy. I'm sure he'll be happy to talk to you, hear what you're interested in in terms of flavors, and mix you a wonderful drink to go with it. All right, now join me. Head across the street with me from Campagnolo Upstairs to the Cobalt Hotel, and in particular Boxcar, their uh, beer nook in that space. I met up with a bunch of friends, and one of them, as I say, is Chad McCarthy, lawyer by day, Cicerone by night. And here's our discussion about the craft brewing scene in Vancouver and just what you might like to drink in the summer of 2019. Well, great to see you again, Chad. Thanks, well. thanks for asking or answering a few questions. Of course, of course. <laughs> tell us anything new and interesting in the craft beer scene. Gosh, well, I guess I can tell you what's new and interesting to me. Uh, I can't sure. promise that'll be new and interesting generally or not, but sort of little tidbits that have popped onto my radar. The first thing is uh, people... there's. Growler sales, I don't know if they've slowed or not, but people seem to be a little more keen on buying cans of stuff than growlers these days. I think it might have something to do with the proliferation of super hop forward and hazy IPAs and stuff that get any oxygen into them at all and they start to go off. So, I mean, you can really preserve the condition of your beer a lot better in a can. So, um, not the growlers are going anywhere, but cans seem to be growing in popularity. There was the Brute IPA, I won't say craze, because it never really caught on, but people were making the style of beer called Brute IPA, which... I've yet to have an example I actually like all that much. Uh, is that, for the, the uninitiated like me, is that the, sort of the, the champagne bottle-style beer? or is it, Yeah, well, not know, the bottle, but just sort of a champagne-y beer. The idea is they want a beer as dry as humanly possible. So brewer, most breweries, when they make them, will add an enzyme that will break down any residual, longer-chain sugars that the yeast can't eat and break them down into simple sugars and just make sure there is no sugar left at all that's kind of kind of the goal in my my experience they somehow they often lack a bit of hop characters i'm not sure why they're called an ipa but uh, i'm sure there's maybe maybe good examples out there i haven't had one personally but that was a little blip on the radar uh, unfortunately glitter beer was also a blip on the radar for a while a few breweries were throwing glitter in their beer uh, i completely <laughs> missed that and i'm actually kind of disappointed i wish i'd seen it <laughs> Sounds good. I don't know what happens to the glitter once you've consumed it, mind you. I don't really want to think about it, but um, there were some breweries throwing glitter in beer. It was kind of a novelty, so I mean, that's kind of kind of fun, I suppose. Uh, in terms of the beer itself, a lot of breweries are playing with kvik or kvik, or I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it's a type of, it's a strain of brewing yeast or yeasts, uh, plural, it, more or less comes from Scandinavia and can ferment super warm without throwing off bad off bad off flavors. Produces a lot of wild fruity esters and stuff. So I think some breweries are producing beer with that with pretty good results. It ferments exceptionally warm though. I was talking to a brewer recently and they fermented at 39 degrees Celsius 
and it was essentially done in one day. Wow, I bet. About a 24 to 36 hour fermentation, so pretty interesting stuff from the nerd side. Other than that, um, in the news lately, I guess uh, rents are going up, as we imagine they are for everyone and everything in Vancouver. It's starting to hit some breweries pretty hard, though. Uh, Storm Brewing, who's been around since the 90s and is one of the original craft slash microbrewers in town um their lease looks like it's not getting renewed beyond a couple of years from now and they're really at the end of the rope they don't know where they're going to go for the same price uh rents generally have gone up around town uh i've talked to one or two brewers not a ton but you know they're really having to struggle and change their model are you seeing some breweries and do you think we'll see more moving into more suburban i'm now living on the sunshine coast and we've got a few interesting craft breweries there of course and it seems to me one of the benefits to being there is the obvious one your overhead on the physical premises is going to be that much lower are we going to see more breweries that maybe started in vancouver moving out to the suburbs I'm not sure if they're going to move or not. I think a lot are going to start out in the suburbs. I mean, there's certainly no shortage of them now. Part of that maybe might be cost. Part of that's undoubtedly lifestyle because the brewers and the employees like being in a place that's maybe a little more chill and a little more affordable. Uh, so it totally makes sense to me we're going to see some more of that. That also results in some a uh, little more pressure to make use of current brewing infrastructure i mean we have brewing companies that are brewing on other people's equipment uh guys i know from my home brewing club formed boombox brewing and they originally brewed out of dogwood brewing and now they're at parallel 49 so they basically are sharing the equipment and they will use some spare brewing time where parallel 49 is not using their equipment and can make their own beer on it which is really a great efficiency McAllister brewing in town is a co-op brewery and their whole model is sharing brewing equipment People that have had to scrimp and save to invest in their own operation and their own brewing equipment, of course, raise objections to this because they have had to find the funding to go out and get this equipment where these other guys have come along and decided they can share others. So I don't know if that's a a complaint. I put a lot of weight in. There's one other thing uh, that that came to mind that's a sort of big deal too. I mean, the explosion of the Me Too movement... um, in the last year or so has, has also, you know, the beer world has had a focus on that as well. And there's been a couple of notable blow-ups in social media and the real media of brewers or owners of breweries or brewing-related companies uh, saying and doing things that they are really not supposed to and that are very offside and getting called to account for it. Probably the biggest one in my mind, there's a... A series of publications called The Brewing News that has chapters across North America. There's the Northwest Brewing News for Cascadia, and there's Great Lakes Brewing News. Anyways, it's owned by uh, one individual who wrote an article that uh, very superficially was a satire of misogynistic behavior, but was very transparent and really seemed like it was uh, an an anti-feminist rant in a lot of ways, and he got called to account and actually expelled from the company that he owns and was the I think chairman of or something. So there was a few others like that as well. So I mean, with the the whole sexist attitude that's pervaded macro beer for so long, I think um, it's nice to see that in, in craft beer especially, people will at least sometimes now call that out and people will t- take a stand. So that's been encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and interesting because I hadn't heard of that, whereas I have heard 
perhaps it's just because I'm more familiar with the food scene than I am the beer the beer scene. But certain, and I think Mario Batali would be the most recognizable name in a similar way on the food side, right? right. So it's very interesting, and to your point, encouraging to seeing see it happening in the beer scene too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's still problems with diversity in beer, especially when it comes not just to to your gender, but perhaps you know your race as well. I mean, there's there's beer is pretty white still and then like as much as people want to change that it's pretty slow to change and there's great examples of it but we got to be aware of that absolutely okay well let's let's move to hopefully happier topic a standout (laughs) beer experience is there is there one that that comes to mind in the in the time since we've spoken last which gives you almost a year of beer experiences so i appreciate that's a hard question to pick one to stand out with it is incredibly hard especially because i have a almost two-year-old and my beer drinking has (laughs) slowed to a bit of a crawl Well, maybe that makes it easier. There might have just been one beer experience. <laughs> by probably my favorite beer experience doesn't involve drinking beer, but making it. Our homebrew club got together and did a very bizarre event one weekend out in Port Moody where we decided to see if we could... Just to back up a little bit, among the beer judging program standards, there's a lot of different styles of beer that they define and, and that exist in the world, but their group normal beer is grouped into roughly 25 categories. So we, we wanted to see if we could brew a single beer from every single category in one day. So we got together a bunch of our brewing equipment and a bunch of recipes. It's sort of a quick and dirty version of each beer. Maybe not the best recipe you'd ever have. But we got together and brewed 25 different beers in a single day. And then we did something weird in that we randomized, the the brewing part being the cooking hot side. Uh, But but before fermentation, we took what we'd produced and uh, randomized the results and seeded them to different fermenters and didn't tell them what it was. So they had to smell it and taste it, figure out how they wanted to ferment it, and went from there. So we're going to have a little tasting, well, more than a little, I suppose, (laughs) tasting party um, in about a week or so and see how they turned out. Um, I'm really ashamed to say that the beer I got, and this is not just self-serving, but I'm sure it's not 100% my fault, turned out absolutely terribly. It is the worst thing I've made since I started brewing. I'm pretty sure in the rush that several batches got some sort of had sanitation problems, and I'm pretty sure this is one of mine. I'm going to take partial responsibility, but not full responsibility, because I'm sure there was... uh, something foreign that got in there and messed with it because it's completely undrinkable. Yet, we were told up front we have to bring it and serve it and do the walk of shame in front of it uh, no matter what. And that's so, going to happen. Yeah. That's so fantastic. it's really a story about yeah. the worst beer I've had in a long time, I guess. <laughs> what, what, one of the best experiences. And final question I've got, Chad. What are you sipping these days? I know you've got an, a very... Bold. I'm going to say bold beer on the go right now because I had a sip of it. You're eight percenter there. It's a little but much to be a, honest. Yeah. <laughs> but, but apart from that one, what are you sipping these days, and, and what might you recommend for the uh, the coming season? You know, to be honest, I recommend the opposite in alcohol content to what I'm currently drinking. I'm on a bit of a quest to find full flavored, enjoyable, low alcohol beers. I, I mean, it's easy enough to find something with a lot of alcohol. And a lot of flavor. <laughs> yes, and a lot of flavor. And especially if you want to feel happy quick, that's not hard to do. But I think it's it's a little tricky to make a low alcohol beer. It still tastes great. I actually, it was 
completely unseasonable, but I made a beer that some other people in my homebrew club made um, early this spring, late in the winter. It was sort of a version of a Biahoy, which is a Vietnamese scrappy under the table in a pale kind of uh, low alcohol beer that apparently is made in Vietnam at pubs. And anyway, I, I made a version that wasn't that scrappy and was actually fermented properly, but it was 2% alcohol. And it's, it's a bit thin, but I'm telling you, on a hot day, that would be incredible. And it was also beer that, despite my alcohol tolerance not being that great, I sat down with a liter stein of it and drank it and felt no effects whatsoever. So I'm really keen to try that again. It was about 40% rice and the rest malt. A little hoppier than I maybe should have made it, but it's still, like, that was great. So I, I don't need a beer exactly like that or quite that low alcohol, but I really love looking for the low alcohol well, alcohol options that are great. Um, I know you're drinking a beer that's just above 4% right yep. now, which is... It's, it's delicious. It's, it yeah. is carrying a lot of flavor, and I'm yes. certainly not missing any alcohol. Well, there you go. I made a, a best bitter at home that was about the same alcohol content, just over 4% and, and lovely. Um, had to let it warm up a bit, though. Right. Drinking it cold wasn't as good. You know, it's British beer. You need British to let beer. it warm up a bit. Uh, but fantastic. So really, I think the low alcohol beers is what I'm about in the summertime. I think more uh, Radlers have been a thing for several years now, but people tend to drink them pre-mixed in a can. I tend to think of that more like buying a pre-mixed can of rum and coke. Like, I'm sure it's fine, but I'm pretty sure if you make it yourself or get a bartender to make it, it's going to be better. So you can buy whatever generic lager you want and choose your juice, typically lemonade, but could be grapefruit, could be anything, or Sprite to make a shandy, and, you know, pour in the ratio you want, and you've got a lovely summer drink that's pretty hydrating, low alcohol, even if you don't, if no one's brewed it that way. Yeah. Uh, just lovely. I mean, I've typically you'd use a macro lager and some sort of juice, but uh, a friend of mine made a great IPA and had some uh, sort of a hybrid mango orange juice that matched up with the hop flavor really well, and it was incredible. So uh, I think people should experiment more of that uh, at home. Just that's a lovely way to have a, a drink of something on a hot day and stay hydrated. Stay hydrated. I think, I think that's a great idea, and it's something to do with if you find yourself with a bunch of macro lager that you may or may not uh, enjoy on its own, and sometimes I do enjoy one of those on its own, oh, yeah. but if, uh, but great way to use it up. Yeah, especially like sometimes the fruit juice can get a little sweet or can get a little tart, and so this backs the sweetness off, and you get maybe a bit of a creamier mouthfeel, a little more of sort of a wheat undertone that makes it smoother. So I kind of I, I really enjoy them. So I'm I'm not ashamed of throwing all kinds of stuff in my beer if I feel like it. So I don't think anyone else should be either. <laughs> Agreed. Well, a great note to end it on, Chad. Thanks so much for uh, for catching up on the show. No problem. Great to see you. I really appreciated catching up with Chad. It was a really fun night sitting at the bar at Boxcar and uh, having other friends around us and just having that really fun and casual chat. And isn't it great to connect with someone who is a real enthusiast? I find that when you meet these people, it almost doesn't matter what they're enthusiastic about because they're so enthusiastic about it that it's infectious, whatever it is. Happily, though, I also happen to like beer, so I was naturally inclined to be interested in what Chad had to say. And it was great to get his views on what's been going on in the craft brew scene over the last year, and also what we should be thinking about sipping on this summer. So I hope you give some of his recommendations a try. 
Okay, now across the water and to the Sunshine Coast of BC, we're going to head to Persephone Farm, Persephone Brewing, which is an 11-acre property. And as you'll hear, it really is a complete farming program. They've got chickens, they've got tomatoes, they've got kale. They're planting some garlic this year, and they've got row upon row of these gorgeous hops that they harvest. And there's quite an interesting story about just how they harvest it and uh, some of the minor dangers associated with harvesting hops. They've got that whole operation. They put out some fantastic beer and, again, a really welcoming place to go. Uh, You can chat with Rue Miller, who you're about to hear from. He's the tasting room manager, another really friendly, welcoming guy, and is going to pour you some delicious beer. So join me now in Gibsons, BC, and here we go to the farm at Persephone Brewing. All right, here we are on the upper floor of a gorgeous old, I just learned, flower farm house in Gibsons, my hometown. And I'm sitting here with Rue Miller, tasting room manager at Persephone. Rue, first of all, thanks so much for having me and, and pouring me this delicious honey ale. Uh, yeah, no problem. Thanks, thanks for coming to uh, thanks for coming to the farm. Absolutely. Well, and you know what the word you just used is a super important one: uh, farm. And let's let's talk about that because I think of I'm starting to think of Persephone more as a farm. Originally, I got to tell you, I thought of it as a beer operation, which of course it is. But the beer is really integrated into the farming, isn't it? Maybe you can just walk us through. We just did a quick tour around the property. Just tell us what the farm operation is here and how it relates to the beer. Absolutely. I mean, it, it kind of it starts with everything from, you know, what the original plans of this operation were, which was to be a a hot farm and uh, you know to be kind of one of the leaders in in kind of this sort of different tasting room style. Like uh, it was never meant to be something that you could find in the mainland. Uh, you know, and as somebody who who came from the Sunshine Coast, this was one of the things that drew me to the Sunshine Coast, made me want to stay here. Was like I was like, you know, come from Vancouver where this would never be a thing. <laughs> right, you, right. you could never have this big parcel of open land with hops growing and, you know, a vegetable garden that you could go and drink amazing beer and, you know, kind of just sit and chill with your, you know, kids hypothetically or with your dog or, or just with friends. And, uh, and so when I saw this place, you know, I, it kind of blew my mind, but it was really this idea that it wasn't really a brewery. It was, it was so much more. It was, it was the farm. And so, you know, so consequently I, I pretty much always call it the farm when I'm when I'm kind of coming to work or when I'm referring to it. And you know the the part of this that I that I really fell in love with working here was, well, the beer is good. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but it was, but it was the rest of it. It was it was so much more than just that. It was you know it was everything from um, you know farmers Dan farmer Dan's passion about you know vegetables and growing food. Our CEO Brian's pure enjoyment of turning compost over. Uh, you know, the, the guy works in in the financial industry for the most part, and he is at his happiest when he is in his overalls turning compost in his excavator. Um, it, you know, it's pretty funny that, that you can kind of have that, that mix of, of this very, like, casual, farmy kind of feel um, with something that is just... You know, such a community hub and such a such an amazing operation. Absolutely, and and the the compost is really, I find an interesting hook because you were just telling me as we were walking around outside about the compost, how that involves just about everything, both from the farm and the coast as a whole, right? Because we've got spent grain in there. Yeah, we've got. Well, you tell us we've got uh, wood chips and then fish fish guts, right? <laughs> Pretty much, um, um, yeah, fish castings. Um, but but basically, what it is, it's. Um, you know, we use, we use, in our brewery, we, we're on a septic system on our property, you know, going to take it back a couple notches here. And because we're on that septic system, 
we kind of needed to figure out a way to, to deal with that. Like if we're, as we, we brew in an in everyday, you know, basis, we're going to flood that septic system in no time. So we needed to kind of get a, develop a wastewater system that uh, dealt with things. And in order to do that, we needed to make sure that all the solids came out of our brewing process. Being a farm, we were like, what do we do with those solids? I know. Let's throw it in our garden. Let's let's make this into compost. So, you know, it's it slowly turned from, you know, something that just, just became, a, that, that bloomed from a necessity into something that's, you know, a whole part of our operation where we're getting, you know, the arborists from all over the coast to drop over their, their tree chippings because they need somewhere to dump and because it's such good nutrient for our, nutrients for a garden over time. And all we really need is the space and somebody to turn the compost. Um, luckily, and we have that somebody. Yeah, that's right. You got a CEO. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I actually should say an ex CEO because he just he um, we actually just got a new new CEO and it's been been one of the big exciting changes that's that's been happening at the brewery. It's been a big time of flux and uh, you know Brian, you know is is still a big part of our operation. He's still the owner, uh, but he did step a, step step aside as CEO and um, okay. we had a woman named uh, Jen Revere who were really fortunate who decided who wanted to come to the coast and work for us. Uh, the reason I say we're really fortunate is because she, she was the uh, chief strategy uh, and sustainability officer for New Belgian Brewing. Wow. Um, which, is, which is something of a big operation. Which is a little bit of a big operation. Uh, she's worked with them for 23 years. She really saw their bloom happen. And, you know, when we're talking about, like, similar or like-minded, you know, companies, uh, New Belgium is also a B Corp, which is something that we're known for. And, you know, is really like one of the leaders in this industry. Well, let's let's connect back uh, again to the farm because we're looking out at the crop at the well, crop field, the hop field, field of hops. And maybe just walk the listeners through the process. Here we are at the beginning of July and you were saying that the, the hop harvesting really happens sort of late August, early September. And maybe tell us about that process because you're also so showing me some uh, minor scars in your arms from last year and the hop harvesting but but tell us what's involved in that harvesting the hops and then and then what happens to them and and how they get into the tanks yeah absolutely so uh you know uh, we we do have a really you know a, a minor hop hop farm here um i don't want to you know misconstrue anybody and think that we do you know all of our own hops um that's not the case but it does um power our coast life logger um, so, you know, when our Coast Life Lager won gold at uh, last year's Canadian Brewing Awards, it was a really big win for us because not only was it a gold for our lager, but it was also gold for our hops. Right. Uh, They're yeah. grown right here yeah. on the farm. So. Absolutely. And I've got to um, say, um, everybody that I've given that beer to, we've always got a six-pack in our fridge, and everybody loves it. So it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't surprise me you it's, want. It's so approachable, and it's, you know, it's definitely one of my favorite beers for sure. And can't say how proud I am to say that it's, yeah. it's done with our homegrown hops. But yeah, the hop harvest uh, is something that happens every year. Hops are a perennial uh, flower, ultimately. That uh, they're climbers, and they basically what happens is they uh, they grow these big long tap roots, tap roots, and every year around April or May they start to come up and shoot up. Eventually, we attach them to ropes, and they circle and climb up the ropes till they're you know at the top. Uh, our trellises are 18 feet tall. Uh, the hops will usually continue to grow after that and start growing around the trellises afterwards uh, for another five or six feet. So they get to be, you know, by my estimation, probably about 20, 20, 20 some feet tall. Wow. They're big, long uh, binds. And yeah, so around September, well, maybe late August uh, for our climate, uh, we find that we have to harvest the hops. Um, for a really small scale op- operation like us, it doesn't make sense to get machinery or equipment like that. Uh, it is really a small-scale operation, so we, um, uh, our farmers, uh, cut the cut the basically the 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 rope 
and the binds right at the base, and then we get on a scaffolding unit and we cut them right at the top and basically pull them down, the whole thing. Barbs, That's really funny. Barbs we had, and all. Barbs and all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as I was saying, uh, I've got scars from last year. They, they've got little, like, backwards hooks on them, so as you cut them down, it's actually someone's job to, to catch them, theoretically, before, because you don't, you know, you don't really want these precious cargo hitting the ground, bouncing <laughs> off the ground, so, you know, even if you're wearing long sleeves, you, you sometimes find them cut through. I could also blame it on my cat, but right. I'm not quite sure which ones yeah. are which. <laughs> And, and basically, anyway, after that, we, uh, we bring them to the table and, and we ask community members to come out and, and give us a hand. I mean, really, again, being a small-scale operation, we, it's, we make it a big community thing. We ask community members to come out, help us, come pick hops for as long or as little as you want, and uh, we'll buy you some beer, buy you some pizza. Generally, you know, it's, staff is hanging out. Any, any downtime that any staff has is usually involves going out and picking hops for, for that, kind of, that kind of time. Uh, I'll be honest, it's completely one of my favorite times of year. It's, yeah. it's, um, it's a great time on the farm. But, uh, but you know, for us, uh, it's important that... The most important thing is that they get as quickly from the table into the hop dryer as possible. Okay. Uh, the, 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 uh, as little time lost there as possible is really crucial to making sure that, uh, you know, those, those alpha acids and those kind of other sort of flavors and oils um, stay in there as much as possible. Right. And, and, and that was something I didn't know until you told me five minutes ago, maybe, was that, that it's really the... Because hops are, yeah. at the end of the day, they're a flower, and it's really the pollen that is flavoring the beer. Yeah, the, the lupulin uh, powder, ultimately. Um, and yeah, basically, it is it is ultimately the pollen that's really in there. The uh, hops look like, they look like kind of little pine cones, and uh, and they, uh, and so it's really quite tricky to actually get at, at that kind of flavors. You know, if your beer is, is able to be to be equipped to, to handle wet hops, you can absolutely get some amazing flavors out of them without, you know, once things are dried, you do lose some of those sort of essential flavors and kind of oils and stuff like that but in the long term it's a lot more consistent you get a lot more quality you know long-term quality out of it right versus with the west hot wet hops it's really you know you see all these posts from these breweries that are like we're at the we're at the place picking hops right now and <laughs> brew day is tomorrow right. and it's it's a matter of making sure it gets from place a to place b as quickly as possible so uh so it stays as fresh as possible so you know, it's kind of the same thing for us is making sure that they get into that hop dryer. Well, tell us about the other crops that you're growing. I mean, we just walked by, I, and as I was saying to you, uh, my fiance and I, we belonged to your CSA last year. Uh, didn't get our act together in time this year, but will next year. Uh, so we had great stuff, and I saw the greenhouses where the tomatoes were coming out of last year. Kale looks like it's in great shape right now. Uh, and you're telling me about garlic, but just give us an overview. What else is the farm producing? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, again, kind of going to the primary staple and, and vision of our of our compost uh, turning CEO Brian. Uh, <laughs> he does a lot more, I should say too. Like the dude is a great guy. He does amazing stuff. He does so much for our organization. But uh, but I just want to I want to express the sheer joy that he has when he's turning that compost. Uh, <laughs> I hope I don't get fired for this. Yeah. <laughs> um, all jokes aside. Um, it is really his. It was really his vision to be, you know, not just brewery, but a, fo- a food production center as well. On, on the Sunshine Coast, relied on ferry on the ferries for a lot of our food, and the more we could do to to help out with this, you know, sustainable food system that we could have on the coast, uh, the better off we are. So um, every year we just try to grow our farm, our farm operation a little bit more and a little bit more. And we have an amazing farmer, uh, the legendary farmer Dan. I try to tell his tales everywhere, so <laughs> hopefully you hear whispers in him. Um, <laughs> he's he's really awesome, and he. Um, you know, he makes sure that uh, that the CSA program is, you know, has a balance of, you know, all sorts of everything from leafy vegetables and, you know, basic salad making stuff to 
cucumbers, you know, eggplants. Uh, like you said, the tomatoes are really, I think, what he excels the most at growing, especially when they come to color. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I, I really love about our farmer, Dan, is that he... Um, he enjoys the color and things too. So like when, he, when things act like right now they're all green tomatoes, but like in a few weeks when they actually come into color, there'll be all sorts of different kind of shades and, and beautiful kind of an assortment of, of heirloom tomatoes. And, uh, and so, you know, the whole idea is that it's an abundance and we're growing, you know, everything that you kind of need to, to kind of nourish yourself for the summer months. And, um, uh, we, we do the CSA program. That's the primary modes of distribution. We also grow, um, cider, uh, apple trees as well. We have, um, you know, we are, we are production cidery. Um, so, you know, we, we do try to produce some of our apples on site, although uh, the rest of them we do get from, from BC. The other thing that we really, that we we're really trying to grow this year is um, a bit more of like an added value product to the farm. The whole thing with farming is that it's, it's often hard to be profitable. Let's be totally blunt here. Um, so, you know, trying to figure out everything we could do to try to, try to just add, add value. So, um, uh, you know, that's everything from pickling garlic scapes that we're, we're looking at doing in a little bit to um, uh, we're growing hot peppers in the greenhouse that we're going to try to make it take a run in hot sauce uh, making. Oh, fantastic. Um, you know, uh, Dan's a bit of a maniac. Can I, can I pass <laughs> some more legends out here? But uh, he's definitely, he loves his spicy food. And, uh, yeah. And, you well, know. but when you think about it, you, you've got a farm, so you can produce hot peppers, and you guys know how to ferment things. So yeah. that is hot <laughs> yeah, sauce. Yeah, right? It's basically <laughs> hot sauce right there. <laughs> And yeah, so it, you know the whole everything we're trying to do on the farm is just is get it to kind of to be a place where where the farm could kind of be self sustainable. You know, just trying to find those crops that are really desirable and, and kind of meet that intersection of like what people really want and um, and need for their everyday lives, with also the stuff that like when you're in a tasting room, um, you know, this is switching topics a little bit, but like you know we're trying to trying to switch people from you know looking for chips in the tasting room to like grabbing that that thing of snap peas or, or, you know, we, we carry cherries as well and kind of just stuff that's like, you know, stuff that's just from the farm yeah. and, and, you know, it's a little bit healthier. Even the junk, the junk food that we have is, is, uh, is like dehydrated snap peas with, <laughs> right. with, with cheese powder on them. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's good. <laughs> so, you know, trying to, trying to switch people's focus from, you know, um, just buying crap to, to knowing kind of what you're buying and, uh, and I think, and I, and I have to say that I, I really, you know, we're talking about the farm right now, but this extends to the beer too, you know, this is, you know, it, it, the hope is that if you're buying Persephone, you know that you're buying something that's really quality and that you're getting, you know, uh, farm fresh, right? which is yeah. pretty much our big slogan is beer farm fresh. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and I, and I have to say, I think it, it really, yeah. that's the perfect slogan for us. We, uh, we're a beer farm and we're fresh. So <laughs> beer farm fresh. Well, listen, uh, just a couple more questions yeah, no and, and let's um, shift to the beer here. So one kind of a process thing, and we were chatting a little bit about this before we turned the tape on, the ways in which people are buying beer. And I was telling you that my yeah. friend Chad was talking about uh, what he's noticed, people buying, you know, a few fewer growlers and a few more cans, a few more bottles of beer. Are you seeing the same thing here? You know, I, I really think so. I, I think that there's also there's also a good, you know, there's, uh, growler sales can also live on in the sense through like um, tasting room one offs and stuff like that. Stuff that you can only really find in tasting room on draft. Right. right. Uh, but this I do. This is your chance to get. This it. is your chance to get it. Yeah. And and you know I'm, I guess what I'm saying is that there's there's so much variety out there in this craft beer industry right now. Uh, you know, specifically looking at the BC craft beer, BC. 
BC craft beer industry alone, let alone, you know, looking at the United States, Alberta, international, like, you, you know, you can keep going, there's more and more options available for you. You know, I, I get distracted when I'm in, in a liquor store and I see all these things on the shelf that I'm like, oh, that sounds really good. I want to try that. Passion fruit, sour ale? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. sure, Sign that's up. awesome. Super juicy IPA? Also awesome. Like, these are kind of these, you know, they're, they're all yummy and everybody's kind of uh, has a finger on the pulse of what's interesting. So, um, when you're on top of it, I find that you're kind of, you know, you can maybe split in a lot of directions and, uh, you know, what, what I found happening in my house is that, you know, maybe I just wasn't drinking my full growler. So, um, so sometimes, you know, I just prefer to have those, those four packs. And, you know, the beauty of those is that you, you're just assured the quality over a longer period of time, you know, with your growler, you're, you're always wary of how much you how much you have left in that growler before you're like, okay, I just need to finish this now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Whether I want to be or not. <laughs> and admittedly, I'm a, I'm a bit of a lightweight myself. So I find like, you know, when I'm in, when I'm at that halfway point in a growler, I have to crush that rest of that growler I, it could get me into a bit of a trouble so right. you know I personally find myself steering a little bit more towards uh, go, going for the going for the bottles or, or the cans yeah. that being said I, I find that this industry is really based a lot around difference so I I have a fact I have a feeling that all of this will ebb and flow in some sort of Over way time. I I wouldn't be entirely shocked if labeled six packs for example 355 milliliter six packs yeah. became a very big staple in the next, you know, couple of years. Right. Just because the right. whole the whole trend is that everybody wants to kind of see something different, different kind of coming up. And I think, you know, right now we're so saturated with four packs. Right. Um, so isn't it funny? I because I'm old enough that the six pack of three fifty fives is still, to my mind, the standard concept of how you buy beer. Right. But you're right. It has gone out of style. Completely. In quotes. Yeah. Right. And it's the the four pack of the tall boys that's how people buy beer in i mean i'll even look at like our own our own example of beer here at persephone is that our our beer that we have in six packs are all um are all core brands they're they're sure they're yeah. lager they're black lager they're pale ale they're um goddess golden which are pretty much our our staple beers maybe the stuff that wouldn't get the uh wild and crazy craft consumer quite as much because let's be honest here like i think pale ale is the best beer in yeah. the world. I, I will go to bat for pale ale any day of the week, and the rest of them are all also great, too. But, like, pale ale holds a special place in my heart. Yes. And, uh, and, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm delighted to hear that, because it does for me, too, yeah. quite honestly. And there are some IPAs that I like, but to me, they're almost all a little bit too hoppy. Yeah. Uh, but, man, pale ale just answers it. Well, that, that, yeah, that was yeah. that Persephone pale ale was just, like, it was, it was the first beer that got me into craft beer, and, like... And like I said, like I used to say that it was a religion in my fridge. Uh, that's how I used to sell it to customers. It was like it was it was always there. I don't know. It was just always in the fridge, hanging out. <laughs> so you know, as much as I like, I really love pale ale and I'll go to bat for it any day of the week because probably one of my all time favorite beers. I'll get it. I'm getting it less and less because there's so much out there that I just want to continue to explore and explore and explore. And, you know, being a bit spoiled, I always have it on tap here. Right. right. <laughs> you really want to taste, you've got it. Exactly. But um, but I do find myself drawn to, to more and more of those, like, just, you know, wanting to, to get things that I know will, A, last. Yeah. If I could have the willpower to, to keep it, that's great. Um, especially, to, you know, if the style lends itself to aging, for sure. Yeah. But no growler style really lends itself to aging in any way, and and no, you know, no growler is really going to want to sit in your fridge for for a couple weeks while you 
yeah, well, you work through, through yeah, other sorts yeah, of beer yeah. styles, and uh, and you know, I do. I like I said, I think this this beer industry is so saturated with with outstanding beer that um, yeah, it could be really it could really be hard to separate and and stick to an entire growler full of beer at once. Right, right, right. Okay. Fair enough. Well, last question, because I'm going to buy a growler when we go downstairs, because <laughs> I'm going to happy hour with my neighbors. So Lovely. Yeah, so perfect place for me to be. So either one recommendation or two or three recommendations. Here we are, July 2019. What should I walk out of Persephone with today? Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean... Uh, any day is a day for no no fail pale ale. Yeah. Um, you know, just just went to bat for pale ale, but uh, you know, right now I I I personally, you know, it's the beer that I was drinking right now. But I think it's all about the Amarillo Pilsner. It was a new, it was a release that we just had. Um, it's actually a release that just switched styles as well. It was always in a bomber. This 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 year is changing up into a four pack. Uh, tall tall cans. Yep. Shocking, right? Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those styles, though, that I was like, "Oh, that'd be so good in a in a shorter it's six pack." Shorter six, yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's probably my favorite beer on tap right now. It's a very crushable um, pilsner, uh, light, crisp, refreshing. But you know, instead of being that kind of sharp Czech Saz finish that's traditional of a pilsner, it's it's got more of a West Coast Amarillo finish. Uh, Amarillo hop is nice and peachy and very tropical fruity. That's the one that I got to go with right now. But I think you also have to have a sip of the dark cherry sour. It's not. It's not quite. It's not quite, it's not quite allowed okay. in growler fills yet. It's a bit of a pre-release. We're sneak right. peeking it, but uh, you should steal a peek. Okay, I will. Listen, Ruth. Thank you so much for joining me on My the show. My pleasure. Appreciate Thanks for having me. If you get a chance to visit the farm at Persephone, please make sure to do it. It's another really welcoming spot, and about the only place I know where you can sip a beer, watch the chicken scratch, check out the kale patch, and marvel at just how high those hops are getting. I love their focus on healthy snacks in the tasting room that are coming directly from the farm, and I love that they're starting to look at hot sauce production as well. Can't wait to try that. My thanks to Peter, to Chad, and to Rue for making this episode possible. I hope you enjoyed hearing their enthusiasm and their expertise on just what our drink orders might be. All right, that is all for this week. Next week, I'm going to have some updates about what's coming up on the show. But for now, I'll ask, as I always do, that you take a minute to leave a star rating for the show. And if you like, take a couple of minutes and write a review for Cheftimony. You can do that wherever you listen, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or on one of the other podcast apps. And as always, I love to hear from you. One of you recently connected me with someone very, very interesting in the food industry. And I can't wait to follow up on that connection. So, Janice, thank you. It's much appreciated. As always, if you've got a comment or a question for the show or a chef or a lawyer that you think would make an interesting guest, please get in touch. You can message me on Instagram or on Facebook or just send me an email to graham at cheftimony.com. Okay, that really is it for today. I'm Graham McLennan. Thanks for joining me, and I'll look forward to seeing you next week right here on Cheftimony.com.